So I'm going to set the stage for our text. Earlier in the chapter, Jesus has risen from the dead and he's appeared to his disciples. And he appears to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. So after Jesus has risen from the dead, he's appeared to the disciples a couple previous times. And Peter says, I'm going back to fishing. He was uh, probably discouraged and uh, he wasn't where the Lord had told him to go. So Peter says, I'm going to go fishing. I'm going to go back to fishing. The, the language kind of implies that he's not just going fishing once. He's going back to what he used to do. And so he takes some of the disciples with him and they spend all night fishing. And they don't catch anything. And then Jesus shows up. He tells them to cast their net on the right side of the boat, which they do. And suddenly they're unable to pull the net in because there's so many fish. And again, this is a miraculous miracle. They've been fishing all night and haven't caught anything. For the fishermen in here, I can appreciate, I'm sure you can appreciate how frustrating that might be. But Jesus shows up and miraculously there are fish now where there weren't before. The disciples recognize that it's Jesus and they come to shore and they begin to have breakfast with him. So starting in our text, John 21, verses 15, or excuse me, verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? So everybody's got full stomachs. Jesus is going to ask Peter a tough question in front of the other disciples. And he doesn't want to ask Peter when he's hangry, right? He needs them to be full. Um, so he's going to ask him a tough question. He says, Peter, do you love me more than these? And Jesus, when he says, there's different kinds of love in the Greek language, different words for love. And in this particular section, Jesus uses the Greek word agape for love, which refers to a love that's unconditional. And he's, he's asking, Peter, do you unconditionally love me more than these? And it's as if Jesus is saying, Peter, I've miraculously provided for you. And I've had grace towards you. Do you love me unconditionally? And the, the these that Jesus is referring to is unclear. It may have been the other disciples. It may have been the, the fish or the boat, uh, which represented Peter's livelihood that he had left behind initially when he began following Jesus. Um, but in either case, Jesus is asking Peter if there is something or someone that Peter loves more than him. Continuing on in our text, he, speaking of Jesus, said to him, Peter, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Correction. Peter said to Jesus, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Jesus speaking now, Feed my lambs. So Peter, in response to Jesus' use of the word agape, that unconditional love, responds with the Greek word phileo, which refers to a brotherly love. Jesus responds with, feed my lambs. So Peter probably has no idea what's going on at this point, but Jesus is beginning this process of restoration in Peter. Before Jesus was crucified, if you remember, Peter defiantly declared in Matthew twenty-six thirty-five, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And as we know, Peter goes on to deny Jesus three times. Now Jesus, instead of beating Peter over the head about his failure, 
is extending grace to Peter and giving him the chance to reaffirm his love for Jesus. So when we look throughout Scripture, God's people are referred to as sheep. I'm going to give you a couple verses. It should be up on the screen for you. The first one is Psalm 95.7. that says, For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. And John 10.11 says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And lastly, John 10.7 says, I am the door of the sheep. So Jesus both refers to his people, God's people, as sheep, and he refers to himself as the good shepherd and the door of the sheep. The Greek word for feed in this passage means, or in, in this particular part of the passage, means to pasture or to tend. And it's in the present tense, and it it's talking about a continual process of caring for and tending the flock. And Jesus uses the word lamb to describe the nature of his people as vulnerable and not fully developed, and that they are in need of continual care and tending. Continuing on in our passage, John 21, 15, uh, 16, I believe, he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. So this time there's, there's a slight difference. First he said, uh, feed my lambs. Now he's saying, tend my sheep. And this time, tend my sheep is the literal translation. Jesus is telling Peter that there's a supervisory nature to the role of a shepherd. And it refers to the pastoral role in, in Peter's future. Remember, Peter's going to go on and he's going to do great things for the Lord. He's going to see a lot of people give their, their hearts to Christ. Um, so right now, Jesus is kind of filling him in. He doesn't know this yet, but he's filling Peter in on what his role is going to be and also of the supervisory role of a pastor in general. And so this, uh, there's a weight of responsibility that goes with teaching the Word of God. Uh, and that goes for anyone who's teaching it, uh, whether it's a pastor up on stage every single Sunday or um, in a small group Bible study, someone who's leading that. There's a responsibility to correctly divide the word of truth to not lead the sheep astray, right? So um, if you're leading a small group Bible study, um, if you're teaching on a Sunday morning, if you're teaching the word of God, there's a weight of responsibility that comes with it to teach correctly and not put our own opinions in there. James 3.1 says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. So for those of us who aren't pastors, and I'm including myself in this, uh, this passage still applies to our lives, right? Um, in your own lives, I want you to think about the areas of influence that God has given you uh, to the people in your sphere of influence. If you're a parent... Seek to be a godly influence in your kid's life and point them to Jesus. If you're a grandparent, seek to be a godly influence in their lives. If you're not either of those and you have someone in your life who's younger in the Lord and their relationship with, with Jesus than you are, then disciple them. Point them towards Jesus. Uh, it, it might look different depending on what stage of life you're in, what your life looks like, but God gives us these areas of of responsibility uh, where we are to spiritually feed 
tend and care for those that uh, he places within that sphere of influence. And ultimately, what's the goal in doing that? It's to point people towards Jesus. It's to help them grow in their relationship with Christ or point them towards a relationship with Christ. Continuing on in our text, John twenty-one seventeen, He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. So Jesus is asking Peter a third time if Peter loves him. And this time, the first two times, Jesus has used the Greek word for love, agape, which remember is that unconditional love. And this time, Jesus uses the Greek word phileo to ask about Peter's love. So in this moment, Jesus is publicly recognizing Peter's inability to love him with an unconditional love in that moment. Peter had gone back to fishing. He was supposed to be sharing the resurrected Jesus with people. And instead of doing that, he'd gone back to his old life and what he was doing before. And I think even in that moment, Peter knew his heart wasn't right. And he's saying, Jesus, I, I can't love you in that way right now because my heart isn't in the right place. And Jesus extends grace to Peter in that moment and met him where he was at. And that's the good news for us this morning. How often we find ourselves in Peter's shoes when we recognize that we're not walking with the Lord the, the, the way that we should be. We don't love Jesus with the depth that we should. Uh, there's grace for us and Jesus wants to meet us exactly where we're at. It's not just for the, the person who doesn't know Christ. Uh, even after we become believers, Jesus invites us to come as we are. And that's, that's amazing news for us. If that doesn't excite you and, and give you hope, I don't know what will. And if you're here this morning and, if, and you're already a Christian, but you feel like you can't approach God right now, you feel distant from Him because you're, uh, your heart's a little messy feeling maybe, and you kind of feel like you need to clean yourself up before you can come back to Jesus. I'm, I'm telling you, I'm encouraging you right now. That's not the case. Jesus wants you to come as you are. Go before the Lord, and if you need to repent, if there's sin that's uh, putting that block in your relationship with Jesus, repent, turn away from that, and come back to a right relationship with the Lord and have that relationship restored. So the third time Jesus uses the phrase, feed my sheep, it's literally translated, pasture the sheep. The combination that Jesus is using of the different Greek words for love paints a complete picture of the role of pastors. They're to feed, tend, and care for the flock. And the lambs, from the lambs who are young in their relationship with Christ all the way to the more mature Christians, those sheep who have been walking with Jesus for a long time. Continuing on in our passage, John 21, 18 through 19. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This was to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. So Jesus is describing to Peter the manner of death that he's going to die. 
And although the Bible doesn't describe Peter's death in detail, uh, the most commonly accepted church tradition is that Peter will be crucified. The passage says, he'll stretch out your hands. He's going to be crucified on a Roman cross upside down because he didn't feel like he was worthy to be crucified on a cross right side up like Jesus was. And right after Jesus tells Peter that he's going to be martyred for the glory of God, he tells Peter, follow me. John 20, 21, continuing on in our passage, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had been reclining at table close to him and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? So he's talking about John, the writer of our text, uh, the gospel according to John. So Peter has just had this pastoral role explained to him. He's just been told what kind of death he's going to die to glorify God. And Jesus says, Peter, follow me. And Peter looks over and sees John following Jesus as well. And immediately wants to know, Lord, what about this guy? What's going to happen to him? So Peter's focus has so quickly changed, and I, I can so appreciate that because I do that in my own life. Jesus tells me, Brian, just worry about what I've put in front of you. Don't worry about what other people are doing. Worry about me and following me. So I can so appreciate this, uh, this change of focus that Peter is having. Uh, but he's just been told by Jesus to spiritually care, tend, and, and feed the flock of God. And then he looks over at John, taking his eyes off of Jesus. So what was on Peter's mind? We don't know exactly, uh, but there's a few possibilities. Maybe he was curious. He just saw John and was like, oh, what's going to happen to this guy? Or maybe it was out of concern. Uh, or maybe he wanted to compare his ending to John's. I'm going to say that that's probably the more likely of the two. If we remember from uh, earlier passages in the New Testament, in Luke describes that the disciples were in the habit of comparing to one another. Um, I've got the reference for this mixed up, so forgive me. Um, I have Luke 9:33 through 35. It's not correct, but I'm going to read what I have. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? So Jesus sees them talking amongst themselves. And he, he's God, he already knows, but he's giving them an opportunity. But they kept silent. Not all of them jumping up and down, uh, anxious to tell Jesus what they had been talking about. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. So the disciples, you know, they argue about who's the greatest, who's going to sit at the right hand of God in heaven, and they're arguing on the way, who's the greatest? So I think there's a pretty good possibility that when Peter looked over at John, it wasn't out of curiosity. It's a, it was a comparison thing. So if you're taking notes, we're going to be talking about the problem of comparison and the solution. And we're going to camp here for a little bit on the problem. So right after Jesus told Peter, you follow me, 
Peter looked at John and asked the comparison question. What about him? And the truth is, we are so often just like Peter, right? We look at other people and, and wonder, how does what I'm doing compare to this other person? And the issue with comparison is that discontentment and coveting are usually not far behind. And we compare ourselves to others in all kinds of ways, whether it be material possessions, your job, your relationship, your level of fitness, what you're doing for ministry. Uh, and it begs the question, why do we do that? Why do we compare to other people? We all do it, all of us. And I think a lot of times we do it because we're, we're using other people as our gauge of how well we're doing. Sometimes we use comparison to make ourselves feel better or to justify ourselves. Those are ugly attitudes, right? For the, peop- for the person who doesn't know Jesus, this is the lie that Satan uses to keep people blinded from the truth. The person who doesn't know Jesus personally compares themselves to other people in the world and feels like they don't need a Savior. This is a terrible, terrible lie. They compare themselves to the world. They say, I'm doing pretty well when you look at all the other people in the world. right? I'm not in prison. I haven't committed murder. I haven't robbed a bank. Maybe they even give money to the church. So using that baseline for comparison, they're doing pretty well. But as we know, that's not the standard that Jesus uses. Instead of diminishing the Old Testament commandments, Jesus expanded on them. And in Matthew 5, Jesus elevated the definitions of murder, lust, divorce, swearing of oaths, retaliation, loving one's enemies. Jesus says explicitly in Matthew 5.20, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus didn't say these things to deflate people and just leave them hopeless. Because in this day and age, the Jews would have looked at the the scribes and the Pharisees and gone, whoa, if those guys don't have it all together, if they're not doing good enough, how am I ever going to make it into heaven? Uh, But the truth is that Jesus said those things to help people understand that your own efforts are never going to be good enough. You can... All day long, you can do all of the religious traditions that you want, and in the end, it's never going to be good enough to get you into heaven. The standard that we need to be concerned about is God's standard, which is perfection, right? And by that standard, every single one of us on the face of this planet falls short. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that is why we all need a Savior. We all need Jesus. We also compare ourselves as believers to other believers, right? Even after we become Christians, we can still struggle with comparison. It's not something that goes away. It's part of our sin nature. We look at others and we constantly compare what possessions we have, what they look like, what ministry others are doing, what job they have, how much money they have compared to us. And this, this last one, is a specific area that I've struggled in. and I'm, It's, uh, it's an ugly ugly attitude. I've wondered, how much money am I bringing home compared to that other person? And I'm not proud of it, um, but that's, that's the honest truth. And I'm sure I'm not the only person in this room who has struggled with one of those things, one of those areas of comparison. So when comparison is happening, discontentment and coveting are not far behind. 
the tenth commandment in the Old Testament, which remember, the the Old Testament commandments didn't go away when Jesus arrived. Jesus elevated the Old Testament commandments. He said, in, God said in Exodus twenty seventeen, "You shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's." And how often do we all break that tenth commandment? I do it constantly. Um, and it's nothing to, to be proud of, but I think we all do that. And it stunts our growth as Christians because it means that we've taken our eyes off of Jesus. When we're comparing to others, we're not looking at Jesus at the same time as we're doing that. We get discontent with what he's given us and where he has us. So getting back to our text, John 21, 22 Jesus said to him, If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. And I love Jesus' response here. He cuts right to the point. He's loving, but he's blunt. He says, Hey, Peter, don't worry about what I have for John. You just worry about following me. And I want you to notice that it was intentional on Jesus' part to not tell Peter what would happen to John, right? Jesus is God. He knew what was going to happen to both Peter and John. And if it would have been productive, Jesus could have told Peter, well, Peter, John's actually going to have to suffer for my sake as well. We know from church tradition that John would survive being placed alive into boiling hot oil, only to be exiled on the lonely Roman island of Patmos where he would receive revelation and write the book of Revelation. John would also suffer for Jesus, but he would glorify God differently than Peter did. And it's important to note, so Peter's going to be martyred, and as far as we know, John dies of old age. But they both suffer for Jesus. And they're both going to serve Jesus in very different ways with very different ministries, but both were used powerfully by the Lord. And Jesus didn't tell Peter any of that, though. And it begs the question, why not? I think the answer is that it's because it would have caused Peter to compare his sufferings to the sufferings of John. And it would have caused him to take his eyes off of Jesus and put them on himself. Charles Spurgeon once wrote, this will be up on your screen, quote, It is always the Holy Spirit's work to turn our eyes away from self to Jesus. But Satan's work is just the opposite. He is constantly trying to make us look at ourselves instead of Christ. He insinuates your sins are too great to pardon. You have no faith. You do not repent enough. You will never be able to continue to the end. You do not have the joy of his children. You have such a wavering hold on Jesus. All these are thoughts about self, and we will never find comfort or assurance by looking within. But the Holy Spirit turns our eyes entirely away from self. He tells us that we are nothing, but that Christ is everything. So whatever Jesus' reason... We know that it wasn't important for Peter to know, right? Peter didn't need to know in that moment. What was important was that Peter needed to focus on following Jesus. One of the main pitfalls I've noticed for Christians can have to do with ministry, um, especially when it comes to the area of sacrifice. What am I sacrificing for the Lord? 
We can look at somebody else who's having to sacrifice more than we are, or maybe they're suffering more than we are, and we can feel like we're not doing as well as them because we haven't had to sacrifice as much. When I, uh, when I got married, my wife and I felt that we were called by the Lord to international missions, to, to go spread the gospel in other countries, um, specifically countries in Africa. And uh, at the time, it was a big part of our lives. That was what we thought we were going to do. And we pursued it, and God closed that door. And whether that's for a time and a season, or that was just God changing our direction, I don't know at this point, but God did open other doors. And uh, my wife and I found ourselves in Humboldt County. Never expected to come here. I'll tell you that right now. Never expected to. Um, I came here for a job, and I'd never been to Humboldt County before I was assigned to come up here. So God did uh, things completely differently than what I expected. Never expected to be here. Um, But I'm confident that this is where God has me. And our lives today look radically different than what we could have ever imagined. And for me, when I hear about or see other people who are serving the Lord overseas, they're in international missions, they're spreading the gospel, they're sacrificing their comfort and their convenience to serve the Lord, I can sometimes feel this guilt rising up in me. Like, I'm here in the United States, I have all these comforts, I have all these conveniences, and here's this other person who is sacrificing so much to go and serve Jesus someplace else. But Scripture addresses this mindset. This should be on your screen. 1 Samuel 15:22. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than to sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. And I'm going to say something, and I think it's important, so I, I want you to listen to this point. God is more concerned with your obedience to him than he is with the sacrifices that you make for him. I'm going to say that again. God is more concerned with your obedience to him than he is with the sacrifices that you make for him. So if God hasn't called you overseas to minister to people who don't know Christ, if God hasn't called you to another state, another city, another job, that's okay. Don't compare your sacrifice with someone else's and use that as your determination of whether or not you are where God wants you to be doing what God wants you to do. Romans 12, 4 through 8, and this will be on your screen, says, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If in prophecy, in proportion to our faith, if service, in our serving, the one who teaches, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So I want to tell you guys this morning, God has uniquely gifted each person in this room. We're not all robots. We're not all cookie cutter. cutter. Uh, We all have things that 
God has gifted us with and they're unique, as are God's plans for your life, and different from other people. Jeremiah 29.11 says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. God has great plans for us. And uh, we don't have to be ashamed or feel less than uh, because God has called someone else to serve him in a different way. We need to focus on what we have right in front of us that he's put there. Colossians 3.23-24 says, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. This will be up on the screen. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. So what's the takeaway from that verse? Don't look at what Jesus is doing in someone else's life and compare it to what he's doing in your life or compare how much someone else is sacrificing for Jesus to how much you're sacrificing. Because the bottom line is God desires obedience over sacrifice. Whatever God puts in front of you, do it to the best of your ability and do it as unto Jesus whatever that looks like in your life. Christianity is about a personal relationship with the resurrected Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And what it requires is for us to take our eyes off of ourselves and on to following Jesus every single day. And it's when we start to take our eyes off of him that we begin to sink. So we've examined the problem, but in doing that, we've also discovered the solution, and that's the eyes that are fixed on Jesus are not going to be prone to straying and looking at what others have, their status, or what God is doing in their lives. For you note-takers, we've reached the solution. This will be up on your screen, Hebrews 12, 1-2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So when we're looking at Jesus and following after him with everything that we have, everything that we are, we're going to begin to stop comparing ourselves to other people. And instead that comparison is going to be replaced with a Christ-like love. Romans 13, 8-10, this will be up on your screen, says, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. A lot of people think that Christianity is just a bunch of rules and regulations that the Bible tells you how you should live your life. And yeah, there's some guidelines in there. There's some guardrails, if you will, to keep you from just driving right off the edge. But these commandments that are in the Old Testament, they're fulfilled really simply. The Apostle Paul, who wrote that passage, he breaks it down and he just says, Love your neighbor as yourself. When you do that, you're going to be fulfilling all of the other commandments. If you're loving those around you with a Christ-like love, you're not going to wrong them, right? How are you going to 
love them unconditionally with that agape love and at the same time take from them what's not yours. Murder their character or covet what they have. You can't do both at the same time. It's not possible. That's why the love that we have for each other, the correct kind of love, the Christ-like love that we should have for one another, that love of Christ is the fulfilling of the law. It's the fulfilling of all of those commandments. Now let's be honest, this kind of love isn't something that we can just manufacture on our own. You know, of, of our own strength and our own abilities, we can't love people the way that Jesus loves us and the way that Jesus loves other people. It's just not going to happen. Of ourselves, we're actually really selfish and uh, prone to doing just the opposite of, of loving people the way that Jesus loves. And uh, we hoard things to ourselves. We're greedy. We don't love like we should. We have to come before our Father, our Papa, and say, God, I can't do it. I need your help. Help me to love people like you do. And that's going to require some humility because you can't pridefully say, I'm doing a great job. I don't need God's help. That'll get you into trouble really fast. We need to come before the Lord. We need to humble ourselves before Him and ask Him for His help to help us love people the way that He loves us. And this requires us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. So some practical ways to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. I'm going to give you four things. The first is pursue Jesus every day. Simple but profound. Spend time in his word. Spend time praying. Pray without ceasing. Because the more that you're in communion with the Lord, the more apt you're going to be to look at others with the correct perspective. Instead of looking at others with that eye of comparison, comparing yourself to them, you're going to begin to look at them with God's love and God's compassion. The second thing, praise God for what he's given you, right? That contentment. Recognize the gifts that you've been given. Sometimes I think we can, be, we can have that tendency towards dwelling on the negative parts of our lives, things that aren't going well the things that are messy about our lives. And that's when we need to praise God. Praise God for the, the things that he's done for us, the, the blessings that he's given us. Because what that's going to do is it's going to turn our discontentment to contentment. Because it's really hard to praise God for the blessings in your life and at the same time be discontent. And better yet... Praise God for the good things he's doing in other people's lives. You see God doing something praiseworthy in someone else's life instead of comparing what they have or what God's done. Praise God for it. Praise him on, on their behalf. Um, don't compare, right? Number three, seek to be the best steward that you can be of the things that God has entrusted to you. This includes possessions, relationships, jobs, health, you guys fill in the blank in your own lives. Whatever that looks like for you, be the best steward of it that you can be. Remember in the parable of the talents, the wicked servant was the one who didn't do anything with the talents that his master had given to him. The one who put the talents to work, however, was the one who was called the good steward and the one who was entrusted with more in the end. 
And the fourth and final practical way to keep your eyes fixed on Jesus is to love your neighbors yourself. Love them in practical ways and all the other commandments will be fulfilled when you love people with Christ-like love. So we're rounding the, the last corner here with our text. If you'll read with me, John 21, 23 through 25. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now there are many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So Jesus didn't say that John wouldn't die until Jesus returned, right? He said, he basically told Peter, if he stays around until I come back, what difference does that make to you? You follow me. He wanted Peter to focus on God's plan for his own life. I think we can say the same for us, that we're better off when our eyes are fixed on Jesus and we are focused on God's plan for our lives. And in turn, our paths are going to cross with other people. As we look at Jesus, he's going to put this person in our path and say, hey, I want you to love this person like I love you. And John's eyewitness testimony bears the truth of the events that we've read about. Jesus wants us to follow after him without comparison to others. He wants us to fix our eyes on him and focus on his plan for our lives. I'm going to invite the worship team up and uh, we're going to pray. Father, we come before you this morning and God, we recognize that we are wholly inadequate to do what you've called us to do. And Jesus, we need your help. Help us not to compare what you're doing in our lives to what you're doing in other people's lives, Lord. Help us to recognize the blessings that you've given to us. Help us not to be discontent or covet what is not ours. Lord, give us hearts that are overflowing with joy and thanksgiving for what you've done in our lives. Jesus, we can't do it without your help. We need your Holy Spirit working through us to love people the way that you love people. We're asking in humility for your help right now. We love you, Lord. We praise you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. So if you're here this morning and you realize that you don't have it all together, maybe you're not a Christian this morning and as I was talking, you're kind of realizing, yeah, I have been real, I have been comparing myself to the world and feeling like compared to the world, I'm, I'm doing fine. But I'm now recognizing that when I compare myself to God's standard, I'm not doing well. I'm doing really poorly, actually. If that's you this morning, there'll be a group of us off to my left, your right after service. We'd love to pray with you. And if you're a Christian this morning and you're struggling with comparison, God wants you to come as you are. He wants you to come. He wants you to repent, flip a 180 from the direction that you're going, and fix your eyes on Jesus. Ask him for his help. Ask him to help you love people the way that he loves people. And commit everything that you do to him. Amen?